The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You've just landed on the Ellis Martin Report. Stay with us as we present you with expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today I'll be speaking with the CEO of Gatekeeper Systems Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GSI.V. Gatekeeper is involved in providing onboard school bus security camera systems for school districts across the U.S., as well as developing and deploying body camera technology for law enforcement. Important in light of recent controversy in Ferguson, Missouri, New York City, and elsewhere. I'll chat with Harry Fleming, the president of Noblest Health Corporation, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange's NHC.to, operating profitable patient health care facilities in Dallas, Houston, and Phoenix. We'll learn about their successful marketing regimen and recent acquisition. I'll speak with Greg Johnson, the CEO of Wellgreen Platinum, trading as WG on the Toronto Exchange with one of the largest deposits of platinum and palladium in North America. Metals necessary in the automotive industrial arena. And finally, I'll chat with Joshua Young of Young Capital Management. We'll be covering the recent collapse in oil prices and what that could mean for the Texas economy. Let's begin the program. Today, I'm speaking with Harry Fleming, the president of Nobilis Health Corporation, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.to. Nobilis Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of ambulatory surgical centers, or ASCs, with a mission of providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower costs for healthcare delivery. Nobilis, under its previous name, North Star Healthcare, recently acquired Athos Health for $34 million. Athos, based in Dallas, focused on the marketing and delivery of specialized healthcare services in seven states. Harry, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Give us a quick overview of the company, if you don't mind. Sure. Nobilis Health is a healthcare company that owns multiple number of ASCs, which are outpatient surgery centers, hospitals, and MRI centers in Texas and Arizona. Would you discuss the recent acquisition of Athis and the value that this brings to Nobilis as a healthcare marketing firm specifically? Sure. So Nobilis is a little different than other healthcare companies in that we're selective in the procedures that we do at our centers, so we're not like the big hospitals where you take all the emergencies and every type of case. As a business, we're able to select the type of procedures that get good reimbursements and also the type of procedures that we think are easy to market to the consumer. So as a healthcare company, we also have a very strong marketing team. We drive our revenues through the case flow, through marketing efforts, whether online or through television ads. And as we built this model over the last two years, we built up a very large in-house advertising team. And we were well aware of one of our main competitors, which is Athos Health. These guys are based out of Dallas, and they specialize in spine cases through a laser procedure. We knew the team from years gone by, and we engaged in discussions with them. The concept, from our point of view, 
was pretty simple. They had a very, very advanced marketing team, so they were ahead of us by a couple of years. Very good conversion process. One of the ways we illustrate that is at our end, we have a call center, which is substantial, and our ladies are pretty well operators. They'll take the message and they forward it to try and set up the patient visit with the doctor. Over at Aethys, they have patient coordinators, which are very much like sales and educators. So they'll educate the callers. They'll have 15 to 20 different conversations with them along the health healthcare continuum. So they're very good at what they do. We wanted to apply that type of model to our bariatric program, our spine program, and our podiatry program, as well as overlay it onto new programs that we intend to offer at our facilities in both Texas and Arizona. Clearly, in this case, with regard to Athis, you came across very stiff competition in your area, in your business, and the logical move for the previous entity, North Star, was to acquire the competition becoming noblest. This was an odd acquisition in that I've been doing acquisitions for 30 years and this is the first time I've come across a deal like this where there's great synergies and you, you often see that in acquisitions. There's a, a great pickup in management and again you often see that. Where we really deviated from the typical acquisition in a good way is that the Aethys model is that they go and spend marketing dollars to acquire patients and they send those patients to facilities and basically they split the facility fee with that facility. And as a marketing charge. That other half of the equation is where Northstar plays, although we also market, we have the facility side of the revenue equation. So Aethys was unable to acquire those revenues. Northstar, in acquiring the Aethys company, is not only getting the Aethys revenues, but the other facility fee revenues that uh, otherwise would not go to Aethys. Kind of a double pickup in revenues. Break that down just a bit, if you don't mind, Harry. So Aethys has approximately $40 million in revenues for 2014. You would model that out and say we bought 40 in revenue, 5 in EBITDA. We really didn't because all the cases that are being referred to other facilities equal another $40 million in revenues. And so we're now going to capture that. If you look at it this way, we've got the Aethys revenues, the Aethys EBITDA, but we're also getting the facility revenues. And what that means and why it's so impactful to us is that those revenues are going to go to our facilities that are already past break even. And the margin on these cases is over 95%. So you can imagine how much of that $40 million now is going to drop to the bottom line, quite a substantial portion of it. Does that mean that Noblis won't be subcontracting out business to other healthcare facilities outside of those that you own? No, no, we won't be subcontracting those cases in our markets. And the, the Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix markets comprise 90% of the ASIS revenues. So we'll get 90% of that additional $40 million in revenue will come to our centers. In the other cities, for the other 10%, those are cities like Detroit, Michigan, and Tampa in Florida. We'll continue to contract those out because we don't have facilities in these locations yet. Your projected revenue for 2015 is 300% above last year's. That's about $205 million. Does that include acquisitions? What are you basing that on? The 2015 estimates do not include any acquisitions in the future. We may be acquiring companies, but right now, for purposes of the pro forma, we simply did this. We took the estimated $75 million that Northstar was going to do in 2014. We imputed 20% growth there, so that took it to about $90 million. We just acquired a hospital at the end of last September, and we imputed about $40 million in revenue from that. And then we took the Aethys 
2014 numbers and we added those to our 2015 with zero growth. And one of the reasons it's important to understand that number is APHIS has grown at over 50% a year each of the last five years. And North Star has a similar growth track also, as you know. So it's a very conservative number when we say we're going to hit 205 million and have 41 in EBITDA. Are there any acquisition targets for 2015 and 2016? We always have conversations going because companies are approaching us all the time now. And so we have a unique position where we can acquire, we think, facilities at a discounted rate in a numerous market. We're going to look at our markets like Dallas. I think we need capacity up there because we're exceeding our estimates in a great number. So I think we'll probably look for a small hospital in the Dallas area, in the Phoenix area. And one of the things we like about the APHIS model is their marketing is typically online, it's digital, and they reach around the country. So what they've done is they've very effectively moved into a multiple number of out-of-state markets. They do these contractual relationships with facilities in these markets. But now they've set up a model where we can go into a new market without spending millions of dollars in CapEx. We can test the market. We can prove the market. And then we'll go in and acquire a facility to support the caseflow that we've established. So Athos has really been able to assess the facilities that they've been doing business with over the years, correct? Right, and so there's 11 additional markets from Detroit, like I said, down to Tampa, and some of them are good, like Detroit, for example. Turned out to be a very good market, so we're looking very closely at that. Some markets are really on the edge, like Tampa. We don't know if we want to move there yet. It's too early to tell, but it's a great way to grow where you really minimize your risk. Is it safe to assume that Nobilis will realize an organic growth figure of 15%? No, I'm not sure if that's a year-to-year figure or is it just the next couple of years? How does that break down? We're probably going to finish the year 2014 around 80 million, so we expect we'll exceed our estimates. 205 million we think is a conservative number for 2015, so that's going to be about 150% growth there. So moving to 2016, we can't forecast that far ahead for this reason. We, we can talk about organic growth and we could see that happening, but we don't know what acquisitions we're going to enter into. The fact is there's a multiple number of possibilities right now. As you can imagine, with closing the Aethis deal a little over a month ago, we're more preoccupied with integrating the companies and rolling out the 2015 strategy. We still have a lot of opportunities and acquisitions, but I wouldn't imagine we could do anything before the second half of 2015. Are there going to be any equity raises going forward? Any future financings? We're looking for a debt financing right now. We've got multiple options on the table. As part of the purchase of Avis, we structured the deal this way. It was a $34 million acquisition, and it was basically between a six and six and a half times EBITDA forecast and we structured the deal this way 12 million in shareholder debt 3 million in cash and the balance of about 19 million was in stock we'd like to take out the shareholder debt with a larger credit facility like I said we're probably gonna look for around a 20 million dollar credit facility we've got several offers on the table right now that are very good terms so we're just deciding which way to go beyond that debt raise we have no plans for any equity raises if you look at our business it's very cyclical which means the fourth quarter is where you do your lion's share of your business. Almost half of your annual business happens in Q4. And so we had a very, very strong fourth quarter here, which means from a cash flow perspective, Q1 is going to be very, very strong for us. Cued kind of a 60 to 90 day collection process. Now, who's on your, what I would deem, a stellar management team? I'll start with myself first. My background is 30 years of M&A and securities as an attorney and also as an executive, whether at CEO, a CFO, or president, or even general counsel for a multiple number of public and private companies. 
on our CEO side, Chris Lloyd, big four accounting, CPA, MBA, run a multiple number of companies, and has done a very good job in growing Aethis over the last five years. Our chief operating officer, Vance Wells, Columbia graduate, MBA, very, very well-versed in technology. If you can imagine, marketing is all data-driven, as you would know, and so very, very strong in this regard, and so he's really the brains behind that kind of marketing concept there. Don Kramer, our chairman, has 20 years of just constant M&A activity in the healthcare sector, buying and selling multiple units and portfolios of companies in the facility area where we play right now. Marketing is such a strategic component of your business. Without proper branding, it's hard for any business to gain a strong position in the marketplace, especially in healthcare. Did you bring this mindset to the company? Well, yeah, I think the old model is this. Companies would get together with a group of doctors and they'd form partnerships where the doctors would become owners of the facility. And the reason they do that is you can't say to a doctor, there's two revenue sources in a case. You've got the professional fee that the doctor makes and you've got the facility fee that we make. We can't say to a doctor, if you bring your cases here, we'll give you 10% of the facility fees as an incentive. That's illegal. You can't do that. So we had to find a way to get out of the doctor partner model because what happened, especially in the outpatient area, Area is that the doctors would get together, they'd form a partnership, they'd build an ASC for about $3 million, and initially they'd be very profitable. You'd have five or ten docs together. But over the years, there was a proliferation of ASCs built all around the country, and especially in Texas. So doctors would start buying a piece of another ASC down the road, another ASC across town, so they dilute their interest, but they also have to dilute their patient flow now. So that's more of a, a reactive way of running your business, where you have to depend on a doctor to bring the case to you. We needed to break out of that mold, so we wanted to find a way to source the patient. And I can tell you, every doctor in any of the specialties that we participate in would love to handle our patients. It's a great revenue source for them. So the patient acquisition process, I think, is what rules the day. And we wanted to be able to control our revenues. So we've been very effective at building a marketing machine to bring the cases or the patients to our centers. And then we have relationships with, with the doctors to come and treat the patients at our centers. The name of the new company, Post-Acquisition, is Nobilis. Do you have any fear of attrition of patient flow in the redirection to the Nobilis brand and facilities? No, because with the Aethis model, they would send their patient to whichever facility they had a relationship with. The patient doesn't care. It doesn't matter where they get the procedure done. And the relationship that Aethis has with its doctors, again, they'll say, we have a patient for you to see at this center, at this address. That's where the doctor will go. Tell us about the Noblest share structure. We are listed currently on the Toronto Stock Exchange. We were known as Northstar Healthcare up till about a month ago when we formally changed the name. The reason for the name change is this. We recognized that we needed to access the U.S. market, and so we applied for a listing on the New York Stock Exchange. We qualified for that listing, and we're in the process of finalizing our U.S. registration statement, and we would expect to have our listing come up sometime here in the next month or two. So we're on the cusp of that. On the New York Stock Exchange, there are other companies called Northstar Healthcare or similar, and so we needed to change our name. So we did it in conjunction with the Aethis acquisition. So we will remain dual listed for a time on the Toronto Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange. Our ticker symbol in Toronto is NHC for Nobilis Health Corp. 
and on the U.S. exchange, on the New York Stock Exchange, it will be HLTH for health. Shares outstanding are about 60 million. Fully diluted would be about 73 million. Those will be primarily the employee stock options or the shares from the ATHIS transaction that have been locked up. Considering the assets of the company, that's not a huge float at all. No, I think we're real happy with where we are right now. We think our price is obviously a little undervalued, but we think we can rectify that as we roll onto the New York Exchange here in February. Harry, I've enjoyed speaking with you today. I look forward to visiting with you again as we assist in sharing your story with our audience. Thanks for joining us on the program. I appreciate it, Alice. We love telling our story. I've been speaking with Harry Fleming, the president of Noblest Health Corp, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.to. That's NHC.to. Go to their website, noblesshealth.com, and listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Today I'm speaking with Doug Diamond, the president and CEO of Gatekeeper Systems Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GSI.V. Gatekeeper employs integrated high-resolution video, voice, and GPS mapping for extreme mobile applications, increasingly vital for the documentation of law enforcement activity, as well as other security-focused efforts across North America. Doug, welcome to the program. How would you define Gatekeeper's market? The security market in general is divided up into a number of segments. All of those segments are expected to grow to approximately $23 billion by 2017. We reside in the mobile market. We define mobile as really anything that is moving. There's 550,000 yellow school buses in North America, and there's 30 to 50,000 of those buses manufactured every year. There's approximately 120,000 and transit buses, there's taxis, there's aircraft, Coast Guard patrol boats, anything that moves, including law enforcement personnel and security personnel. There's approximately 30 million law enforcement and security personnel that at some point in time will be wearing body cameras. With the recent controversy in areas such as Ferguson, Missouri, and New York City, I would imagine that there would be great interest in gatekeepers' body camera technology across the country. We've just recently introduced a new high-definition body camera. There's been a lot of press in and around the events that have come out of Ferguson. That's driving a significant amount of press across the country. Gatekeeper had introduced the high-definition body camera for not only law enforcement, also security personnel in school districts, prisons, hospitals hospitals, corrections, a number of different marketplaces. Let's review another large market that you also addressed and are already seeing success in, school buses and your student protector system. The student protector is a high-speed license plate reading system that was specifically designed to install on the outside of school buses to deter stop-arm violations. Stop-arm violations occur when a school bus comes to a stop, the stop-arm is engaged and children are either boarding the bus getting on or off. It's during those times that very dangerous situation can occur, and that's when a car will pass that stop arm. In the U.S. this year, there's a projected 15 million stop arm violations, and what's happened in the past is that kids have either been hit by these vehicles, there's been deaths that have occurred near misses. It's really driven new legislation in various states that allow 
counties or cities to use video from a school bus video system to issue a citation. How does this translate into prosecution of these violations and revenue for the company? Gatekeeper embarked on a development project approximately a year ago to design a unique system that can record a evidence pack whereby when such an incident occurs, our system captures the license plate, the vehicle uh, identification, GPS coordinates of where the bus was. We also record some other metadata that really creates this evidence pack for the county and the city to be used in court to issue a citation. Now the average citation in various states ranges anywhere from $250 to $750. So literally in a short period of time there's been this new market category that is created that has the potential to grow into a billion dollar market category. And you already have a good footing in the market. We've been in the market for quite some time. We have approximately 3,500 customers in what's considered at the kindergarten to grade 12 market. Our technology can be used to increase safety in and around the school buses by deterring these incidents from happening. Depending on what business model our customers choose, one of which the systems are paid for by the revenue that's collected from these citations, the equipment can be free of charge to the school district. Gatekeeper will provide the equipment install it on the school buses, manage the entire program, and we can share in the revenue with the school district, the county, or the city, and of course ourselves. With Gatekeeper stock at near 19 cents, there's potentially a great deal of upside for the possible investor. The last company I was involved in was about the same size as this one. It was eventually bought out by Honeywell for almost $11 a share. We believe that we are a great potential investment at these prices. And here's why. Gatekeeper Systems has a wide product line and we're engaged in several markets, one of which is the student protector. I've been speaking with the president and CEO of Gatekeeper Systems Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GSI.V. That's GSI.V. Contact Gatekeeper at 888-666-4833. 888-666-4833. For more information, visit our website ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. I'll be speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Wellgreen Platinum, trading in the U.S. under the ticker symbol WGPLF. Wellgreen Platinum is a North American mining exploration and development company focused on the active advancement of its 100% owned Wellgreen PGM nickel copper project. Located in the Yukon, the Wellgreen project is one of the largest undeveloped PGM or platinum group metals deposits outside of South Africa and Russia. One of the reasons you've been successful at raising money in a distressed resource market is the size of your deposit. It's an exceptional deposit. This was a historic producer developed in the 1970s as a high-grade underground mine, but since the late 80s, it's been looked at for its potential as an open pit operation. And over the last two years, we've been able to more than double the size of the resource. So we're now looking at a project that has over 5 million ounces of the highest confidence resource in platinum and palladium, and another almost 14 million ounces of inferred material. It makes this a giant, and when you consider the fact that the nickel and copper adds a similar a level of additional value to the precious metals, this is really you know, quite exceptional. It still surprisingly remains open to further expansion, and one of the things I think we'll see in the future is additional growth on this already massive resource. Even though production may be at least two years away, you already have significant interest in the offtake from future production. 
production. Because of the scale of the project and because of the mix of metals, we'll, we'll produce what's called a concentrate. There's particularly strong interest coming out of Asia for that type of product because we're probably looking at a very long mine life, maybe in excess of 30 years or 40 years or more. This is a product that's going to be highly in demand. It's the kind of product that these smelters want to secure for their long-term business to know they've got product to process. With that kind of outlook going forward, current metal prices in the market are not as relevant. No, at the current metal prices, even though people are recognizing they're down considerably off their highs of, say, 2011, these prices are fine for our project. Our project is quite robust at these metal prices, in part because we have a mix of metals. We have the platinum, the palladium, gold, rare PGMs like rhodium, as well as the nickel, the copper, and the cobalt. So when we mine a ton of our ore, It not only comes along with several grams of the precious metals, about 10, 15 pounds of nickel and copper as well. So it makes our mining cost low as an open pit operation, and it makes the economics quite attractive. Wouldn't that bring down the cost of getting platinum out of the ground? Yeah, we would estimate that for our particular project on a co-product basis that we're looking at, a cost per ounce of platinum of around $500 an ounce, and that the nickel and copper will pay for mining. So on a byproduct basis, basically you would be producing your platinum for free. That makes it more attractive to potential investors considering possible risk. Today, the average in the industry is is probably close to $1,400 an ounce. Current price is around $1,200 an ounce. So about two-thirds of the current primary platinum production today, and this would be mostly out of South Africa, is losing money at today's prices. And that's just not sustainable long-term. How do we value companies like yours in light of the bear market we're in right now? What many analysts look at if they're looking at earlier stage companies like ours, development stage. They look at their resource inventory in the ground. They apply a valuation based on the market value of the company, which is your market cap shares, price times shares outstanding. Divide that by the ounces in the ground. And that gives you a benchmark for value of what is effectively the market paying for ounces today. If we apply that to the producers in today's market, market is willing to pay between $100 and $300 an ounce in the ground. That's more or less profit margin for a producer. If we look at advanced development stage projects, so this would be pre-feasibility to feasibility stage companies. They're trading at between $30 an ounce and $100 now. You can see there's a discount versus what those assets will be in production, where that price range is higher, and that reflects the fact they still have to be permitted, financed, and constructed. At the earlier development stage, well, the range is from between $3 an ounce in the ground to about $30 an ounce, and the average for a total resource inventory is about $20 per active development stage project in today's market early stage. Just their measured and indicated ounce. Canaccord Genuity assigns a value today, say, looking at their statistics of all these active companies of about $50 now. Where does Wellgreen trade today on those kind of metrics? What do those two benchmarks, $20 an ounce for active early stage companies and $50 an ounce for measured and indicated ounces for advanced development stage, it would imply instead of our kind of 60 to 70 cent price today at $20 an ounce with our current resource, it implies about $3 a share. At $50 per measured and indicated ounce, so just the high confidence ounces, it implies about $4 a share. Our capital increases, the market appreciates the size of the asset we have is very significant. And as we trade towards a fairer valuation, not using historic values from the last bull market, but current bear market values, it implies a very significant move in value over the next year or two as we move towards a fairer valuation. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, president of Wellgreen Platinum, trading under the symbol WGPLF. Type in WGPLF as the ticker symbol. We follow those that like to be followed. Follow them yourself at ellismartinreport.com. Today I'm visiting with Joshua Young, the founder and portfolio manager of Young Capital Management. 
Previously, Josh served as an analyst at a multi-billion dollar single-family office in Los Angeles. Prior to that, he was an investment analyst at Triton Pacific Capital Partners, who's also a corporate strategy consultant at Mercer Management Consulting and Diamond Cluster. He holds a BA in economics from the University of Chicago, and Josh is one of the fund managers I see regularly when I attend corporate presentations in Los Angeles. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, we have not spoken for a couple of years, and that doesn't mean we've had a problem between us. We just haven't visited for a while, and about two years ago, I think the price of, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, the price of oil was probably about a $105 a barrel, is that correct? Does that sound right? right? Yeah. And it's a completely different ball game right now. And I'm sure this is not a happy place for you. I'm sure it's not a happy place for many investors who, I'm going to use the word piled into oil over the last few years, especially hedging against the dollar, perhaps hedging against gold. What do you think has been happening? I mean, there are a number of different theories about it, but it looks like the short-term supply exceeded the short-term demand. In any physical commodity market, you need the supply and demand to match. And so in this case, it looks like the price of oil has been falling in order to match the supply and demand. I've heard from a, a couple of sources that the supply has always been there, that the speculators drove the market up, and perhaps the same folks that drove gold up to a place where that was never sustainable. I think gold and oil are very different. All of the oil that's ever been produced in history has been burned, except for the oil that's been produced today and yesterday, whereas all of the gold that's been produced in history more or less is still available today. So the supply and demand dynamics are very different. It's hard to make comparisons. I think there definitely was a speculative effect on the price of oil. You can see that the speculative futures positions have changed a lot in the last few months. There are way fewer long speculative positions in oil than there were three or four months ago. It's hard to tell exactly whether that's following the price down or whether that's driving the price down, but that type of speculative open interest can have an effect on a commodity price, and that may have been one of the factors that has driven the price down so fast by so much. You don't think that the, the Bakken oil boom in the last two years has had any dramatic effect on the market and what's been going on in Canada with regard to shale? Or is that just part of the picture? I think it's a big part of the picture. If you look at global supply picture, the only place in the world where oil production has actually increased has been in the U.S. and Canada. The U.S. and Canada actually represent more than 100% of the supply increase over the last few years, which means that global oil production outside of the U.S. and Canada is actually fallen while U.S. and Canada have grown. And certainly oil shale fields like the Bakken and up in Canada like the Duvernay and Motney and back in the U.S. like the Eagleford have definitely been the large drivers of that oil growth. Is that production sustainable now given the uh, drop in prices? Absolutely not. (laughs) I think uh, a lot of the wells that have been drilled, especially at the costs that they were drilled, would be uneconomic at current prices. I think that the producers, when they were drilling, were not expecting current prices. And I think that you're seeing that evidenced in CapEx guidance for 2015. I mean, you're seeing large companies that were absolute Wall Street favorites, companies like Oasis, where Goldman Sachs had them as their highest rated, strongest buy recommendation possible. They were touting them as a focus list stock and something everyone should own. That stock is down over 75%. And their drilling budget from 2014 to 2015 is changing so radically that they're dropping 10 out of the 16 rigs that they were running. They're going from 16 down to 6. So obviously you can see that whatever supply they were going to grow, they probably won't. 
And maybe it takes a few months for that to play out. But across the space, you're seeing producers cutting back rigs dramatically. And that will first slow down production growth. And then eventually, if prices stay where they're at, that will lead to shrinking supply from these same places where we were seeing some production growth. So potentially, could we see the same sort of bust that we saw in the 80s with the oil companies and Houston became a ghost town more or less. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think that will be the same type of bust. I mean, that was really bad. And the biggest difference is that there was dramatic oversupply and overcapacity for production in the 80s. At that time, I think there was something like over 10 million barrels a day of potential supply that OPEC could bring on that they weren't bringing on. It might have been even as high as 20 million barrels a day. There was just this huge amount of supply that OPEC could bring on, and they were signaling to the market that they were going to do it. And so they were starting to bring it on incrementally. That caused oil prices to fall and fall more, and there was effectively no bottom except the marginal cost of production for the Saudis, which was super, super low. Right now, there is very little excess supply. The Saudis claim to have a couple million barrels a day, which obviously is much smaller than 20 million barrels a day or 10 million barrels a day. It's unclear whether they even have that couple million barrels a day of excess capacity that they claim. And as a percentage of total production and total demand, it's a very small percentage. And that's the only available spare capacity across the whole petroleum system and across the whole world. From a spare capacity perspective, there's much less less spare, it'll be much harder for things to stay bad as long. We're already seeing a production response. We're already seeing a large number of drilling rigs losing work and getting laid down and seeing companies that hire those rigs announcing plans to cut rigs further. I think we'll see a production response. That being said, things are not going to be pretty in Texas and they will not be pretty in Houston. That's going to be driven by these rig cuts and driven by the production cuts that are going to be associated with them. There's a whole economy associated with the oil and gas industry, and that economy is headquartered in Houston. There are often major offices in Denver, and so things might not be so great in Colorado either. But in addition to all of the direct jobs, there are all of the jobs that are at the oil producers. There's also all of the oil service jobs. There are the oil supply jobs. There's other associated manufacturing and distribution, all the jobs associated with that. And then there's everything that's servicing those. So all of the hotel companies and the restaurants and the shops and the apartments There are all kinds of things that go into an economy and everything that's touching oil and gas producers and oil and gas service companies is going to hurt. And I don't think people are expecting it. We're not seeing a reflection of it yet in the financial markets. Even though I think that oil prices may rebound at some point in 2015, I think that there will still be significant damage from an employment perspective. And that will filter down to a number of different service industries and may affect the overall Texas economy. If you look at countries that are exposed to oil in the same way that Texas is exposed to oil, you look at places like Russia, Venezuela, places in the Middle East, their economies are slowing down dramatically. Russia is in a recession already. Venezuela is a mess. Actually, the stock markets for a lot of oil producing countries, even ironically Saudi Arabia, their stock markets are down a lot and those markets are pricing in a recession. The Canadian dollar is down and Canada is having trouble. I don't think it's so radical to look at Texas and say, okay, well, Texas has a lot in common with, let's say, Canada. Although Texans and Canadians might not necessarily get along so well if you put them in a room together. But um, if you you just look at their economies, there are a lot in, in common. And so I think it's not so radical to say in the same way as people are focusing on Canada and saying, oh, well, Canada's having all these problems and focusing on Russia and saying Russia's having all these problems. Well, I mean, hate to break it to you, but 
the economy in Texas is actually very similar to the economy in Russia. Is that pain going to come to Texas? When will they start to really feel the hurt as far as the general population of the state is concerned? I think it's going to be faster than a year. I think it's already happening. BP put out an announcement that they're planning to spend over the next few months $1 to $2 billion in severance payments as they lay off people, and BP has a large office and facilities in uh, Houston. There's a proposed merger between Halliburton and Baker Hughes, and if that happens, they'll probably shut down the Baker Hughes Innovation Center and fire thousands of people in, in Houston. There'll probably be all kinds of synergies, and frankly, synergies mean jobs. And so there'll be a lot of people that get laid off. Maybe the Innovation Center doesn't get cut, but maybe the Baker Hughes headquarters gets cut or whatever it is. You know, They have to fund a merger of that size through rationalization. And even if they weren't going to rationalize, they still are going to see way fewer rigs both onshore and offshore. And so they'll need fewer people. So unfortunately, you'll see people that were working on rigs and making $100,000 a year go work at Walmart and make $25,000 a year. And those people aren't going to be able to spend as much money. They're going to lose their houses in some cases. Their real estate values are going to go down. Restaurants are going to see less people eating at their restaurants. Hotels are going to see fewer hotel nights, both from employees of companies for on business as well as for leisure nights on people traveling on their own. And I think we're going to start seeing that really soon. I mean, you're already seeing people get laid off and furloughed. And I think you'll see even more of that as the 2015 capital budgets start to be implemented in 2015. And as you see these rigs go from like Oasis running 16 rigs to running six, 10 rigs is a lot of people. And maybe the, the people that work on the rigs were in North Dakota, but a lot of them may live in Texas and commute back and forth. And then all the service personnel that are based in Denver or based in Houston, I mean, that's really going to affect the local economy. So the Bakken's are done then too, right? Done is a strong word, but yeah, I mean, definitely there's a big pullback. And actually Bakken oil right now is selling, or at least the last I checked, it was selling at a greater than $10 differential to West Texas Intermediate. It's really hard to make money in a Bakken oil well at below $50 oil. What are the repercussions for the U.S. economy in general? It'll be interesting. I mean, I think there's definitely a one-time gain for the economy just for consumers as they're able to spend less money on gasoline and go do other stuff with it. Ironically, though, our energy balance is much closer to balance than it ever has been in the sense that like we produce a lot more of our own oil. And so there is going to be this short-term effect of consumers having more money and spending more, but there's also going to be a longer-term effect of lower employment. And a lot of our economic growth in the last few years has been in the oil and gas space. And so as we see companies cut jobs, it's unclear where those jobs are going to be added. And uh, economic recovery was tenuous as is, so we'll see what happens. But it's definitely like short-term very short term, it's good overall for the economy. But medium term, it may end up being more challenging than people expect. Did you see this coming? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Honestly, like I've had conversations with clients about this and other investors and the best oil traders in the world who earn their returns from predicting oil prices rather than doing what I do and, and finding undervalued stocks. Even those guys were caught like with, without their shorts on. Andrew Hall, who's famous, he, he ran Fibro and runs uh, Aston Back Capital and manages billions of dollars trading oil. He was massively long oil and was interviewed, I think, by Forbes in early September talking about how the long dated price of oil was too low. And at that point, it was like $85 or something and how he was buying call options on it and thought it would be great. Recently, he's come out and said now he's short and he actually made money in November because he flipped his position and was short it. But even like the best oil traders were long going into this, not short. How relevant is production in Libya, Iran, and Iraq with regard to supply right now? That's a great question. I think one of the causes 
of oil prices falling so much so quickly was unexpected production coming online from Libya. Libya isn't in the news that much these days, but there's a terrible civil war being fought there right now. And it's actually, frankly, surprising that any oil is coming out of Libya at this point. The rebels seem to be somewhat successful. They've secured control of a number of different cities in the country. It's a relatively small country and not that many large area of land and not that many people, but the civil war is raging. And I don't think anyone really expected the amount of oil production that's come online from Libya. And that's actually started to pull back a little bit, but there was an incremental something like 700,000 barrels a day of Libyan oil production that came online starting in September. And that's around when the price of oil started to fall. I think what's happened is between the, the Libyan production coming online and just it looks like on a number of different fronts, geopolitical risk is getting talked down. I think geopolitical risk has kind of left the price of oil to a large extent. And right now the oil price is implying zero or even negative geopolitical risk. I don't think it's a terrible thesis to own oil on the back of, hey, like, one or more of the producing areas are going to have some kind of disruption or trouble. And in the same way as 700,000 barrels a day of production came online from Libya, 700,000 barrels a day from Libya could very easily come offline. And 3 million barrels a day could easily come offline from Iraq, where there's a terrorist entity that's running 50% of the country. And very easily a bomb could go off on some kind of pipeline or supply terminal in Saudi Arabia or Kuwait. And any one of those things would immediately send oil to a much higher price than where it was back in July. We briefly talked about Russia earlier. Where does Russia figure into any of this? And is their control over energy in Europe waned? I think it's interesting. I think Russia's in a challenging position. I mean, to a certain extent, like the leadership of Russia kind of asked for this. They invaded another country in Europe with impunity and annexed part of it. And that hasn't happened in Europe for a very long time. And the last time it happened to the scale that Russia is doing, it caused a world war. So I think Russia's economy is slowing down a little bit. Relatively speaking, it is minor compared to what's happened in history for countries that try to take parts of other countries in Europe. When you look at their economy, I mean, the largest factor by far is the price of oil and natural gas. And the price of oil falling is definitely hurting their economy. Their stock market's down a lot. And I think things will be challenging for them economically. I think that there's some chance that they try to pull back on production themselves and try to force the price of oil higher. The problem is that for their budget to work, they really need a much higher oil price and all their production online. So every barrel they pull off, they make it harder to meet their own budget targets. So the other way they could go is they could do what Saudi Arabia is doing and produce extra oil and try to grow their production more. From the signals that they've shown, it looks like they'll, they'll shrink. But if you look at what Saudi Arabia did in the 80s, they made up for lower oil prices by producing more volume. So they produced more barrels and the more barrels they produced, the more money they made, even at a lower price. If you were producing a million barrels a day and oil was at 20, or you're producing 3 million barrels a day and oil is at 10, at the 3 million barrels a day, at least your revenue is going to be higher than it was with 1 million barrels a day, even with a lower price. So there is a possibility that Russia goes that direction. They've signaled they're going the other way. They've signaled that they're potentially going to see supply drop in 2015 
and I believe it was Luke Oil that put out their capital budget and indicated that they might shrink their production by as much as a couple of hundred thousand barrels a day, but we'll see. So the best we can hope for, let's say, if a number of these things happen, is maybe $80 oil. Is $80 oil enough to bring any of these producers back in, in Texas, for instance? I actually think oil will recover to $100 a barrel. Okay. And I think that happens over the next few years, potentially over the next two years. I'm a little bit less ambitious than T. Boone Pickens, who came out a couple weeks ago and said that he thought that within one year it would go back to 100. I think it'll take a little bit more time than that. Harold Hamm did that too, like a couple months ago. He said, oh, oil is going right back to 100, and he monetized all his hedges. His investors are probably not super happy with him right now for having done that. I'm not making bets on any like massive recovery of oil anytime in the immediate future. I think that you'll see the price of oil approach the marginal cost of production, and I think that the marginal cost of production is around $100 a barrel and potentially in excess of that. So I think that over time you'll see that. You know, it may take some time to, to get back to that price. And, you know, at $80 oil, like, things are still bad in Russia and they're still bad in places like Texas. You'll still see fewer rigs running. You'll see fewer people employed directly in the oil business, and there's that's going to trickle through throughout the economy. I will say that Texas is a great place for people to live and a great place to do business. And so there has been a lot of economic growth there not directly related to the price of oil. But it's probably not enough for the state to be able to avoid the impact of a shock to the largest industry that's active in the space. What kind of real estate opportunities are there now in the oil and gas industry around the U.S.? From a, a actual real estate perspective, it'll be interesting. I mean, I think that you'll see like re- actual like office prices and residential prices and, and the like fall in Texas and I'm maybe things get interesting. I'm talking but I, about I understand. Oil You're talking about like oil wells. It'll be interesting. Actually, the oil production deals I've seen recently have not been at substantially lower prices than they were at a few months ago. One deal I saw that happened a month and a half ago was for oil production in the Permian Basin and it was at $100,000 per flowing barrel. And that same property a few months before that might have sold for $120,000 a flowing barrel. So it was you know, roughly like 16% or 18% cheaper. It wasn't a huge savings relative to uh, the price movement. And at that time, the price of oil was already down 25 to 30%. There are properties available. There will be people in distress. Probably the best properties to buy aren't going to be producing properties. They'll probably be undeveloped shale properties that are uneconomic at current oil prices, but are very economic at higher prices. Very intelligent, distressed investors have bought these types of properties through cycles. And uh, I was fortunate to have bought some of these types of uh, properties through the public markets, buying stocks that had those types of exposures through the correction in uh, 2008 2009 and, and did well with those too. I think those are probably the best buys, but there will be a lot of properties on the market And from what I've seen so far, prices haven't fallen that much, but there haven't been that many transactions. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Let's talk about shorting oil stocks. Is this a profitable business for the savvy investor right now? I mean, anytime that a commodity goes down a lot, the commodity producer's stocks are going to go down a lot too. And so obviously the price of oil and gas stocks have gone down a lot. So if you happen to have been short them from the outset, you've made a lot of money or you've earned a high return on on the investment that you've made by shorting those stocks. And if you happen to have shorted into this as it's happened, you've you've done well too. On a go-forward basis, the companies that would be the best shorts, the ones that are very highly levered, that have a risk of going bankrupt, are probably not great shorts now 
for a couple of reasons. So first of all, the short interest in those stocks are already really high, which means that there's a high cost to borrow those stocks. There's a risk that you could get squeezed and forced to cover your position at a loss. There's a, a risk of a short squeeze where the price starts to go up really fast and you get margined out and forced to, to cover again at a loss. And then there's a very high cost to borrow. So in order to be able to short the stock, you have to actually borrow the stock and then sell it. And the cost to borrow can be so high that it actually takes up a lot of your potential profit. So in some cases, the cost to borrow stocks are almost as high as 100%. So you need the stock to fall by 100% in less than a year in order to be able to make any kind of profit on having shorted it. So like if you short, for example, you know, XYZ oil company and that you think the stock is going to go to zero. If it costs you 100% a year, and let's say the stock was at $10, if the stock goes to $5 in a year, it costs you $10 in interest payments while it hap while you only earn $5 profit, so you actually lose $5 from having done it. So that's the, the tough economics. But it gets worse. So the reason it gets worse is if for some reason there's some kind of supply disruption, which again could happen any day, and I'm not saying it will necessarily happen, but there are a bunch of different terrorist groups and other like dissident groups in across the Middle East, and there have been all kinds of uprisings. If one of those has one bomb in like the wrong place at the wrong time, you'd see oil supply disruption, oil prices would go back up, and the companies that are the most levered, those stocks are the most likely to go up by the most, especially because they have high short interest. So basically, there's a, a phrase, I believe Warren Buffett's used this and other value investors, they say it's uh, picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. And so you really don't want to be the person who's picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. And at this point, if you're shorting a lot of the heavily shorted upstream oil and gas companies, or even the service companies, you're at risk of doing that. So you know, potential small profit, you have to give a lot of that back because it costs a lot to borrow the stock to short it. And then there's a lot of risk that the stock might go up a lot just from something that's out of your control. So the smart people, this is really risky. It's not something they typically do. You wouldn't do this. Well, I mean, I have been shorting select oil and gas company stocks. There are companies that are frauds, so I'm always interested in finding fraudulent companies and shorting those stocks, whether they're in oil and gas or other spaces. And it's amazing that within the public markets, there's always a few companies that are just, they're just bad. And the people that run them are, are criminals and they do this persistently. Like you'll see them run companies into the ground over and over again. So I'm short frauds and I, I short frauds into rising markets and I short them into crashes and you know, I'll, I'll continue to do that. And I've also shorted very specific companies that have specific cost challenges or that were trading well above their fair value. So independent of the price movement of oil, there was one company that was trading at two times its 3P value. So the proved probable and possible value of all of their assets as assessed by reserve engineers that they paid to do the assessment assessed that their properties, let's say, were worth $100 million and their stock was trading at, let's say, $200 million. And actually, I think it was a bigger company than that, and there was multiples of that. So it made no sense that their stock would trade at that level and insiders were selling. And so like that's an example of something that I shorted. Right now, I'm looking at shorting companies that are levered to secondarily or, or from a tertiary perspective to oil. So there are oil producers and service companies, then there are companies that service them, and then there's kind of these companies that are exposed to the economies in the areas that those companies are active. And I think that those companies, their stocks aren't down at all. And I think that there's some interesting opportunities to make money from that. 
So this is what you do in times like this. This is, or in any time actually, you look for opportunities to help continue to put people out of business that shouldn't be in any business and profit along the way. Well, I don't think I'm putting anyone out of business. I mean, me shorting a stock, uh, I'm just a participant in the market. Whenever I sell a stock, someone else is buying it, whether it's me selling a stock I own or it's me borrowing a stock to short it and then selling it to someone. So I don't actually put anyone out of business, but I think that shorting is a good and healthy price discovery mechanism where it allows markets to get to a more accurate and fair price for a security over time. I think that it's really interesting that there are these companies out there that are exposed, for example, to the Texas economy that are trading at all-time highs, and they're trading at in my opinion, stupid high EV to EBITDA metrics or PE multiples or whatever. And you don't really see that in Russia, right? Like Russian banks that are exposed to the Russian economy are down 80% in the last two years. And right now, the Texas banks that are exposed to the Texas economy are starting to go down, but there are other sectors where they just haven't moved. It seems obvious. And the nice thing about it is that if I'm wrong and Texas continues to grow, I could lose a small amount of money. But if I'm right, and you know things get bad and especially like certain specific areas which are particularly levered to the growth rate of an economy if things even slow down a little bit high multiple stocks that are directly exposed to those economies could do really really poorly and shorting those could do really well you would think that geopolitically speaking and as far as the energy supply that exists in russia and the the banking problem that they're having the hit that they're taking that it would behoove our beloved Vladimir Putin to get behind some mischief in the world. Yeah, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I don't disagree. I mean, like, it wouldn't be the craziest thing. The USSR, which is where Putin grew up and he was a KGB officer, like, they did things that were much more radical than that. This is a a small, it would be a small thing for them to do, relatively speaking. And it's a small thing to disrupt the oil market relative to invading and annexing the Crimea. I mean, there was a whole war in between Russia and the Ottoman Empire and the British and the French over Crimea and disrupting oil markets. I mean, countries disrupt markets for all kinds of reasons. I mean, the Chinese disrupted the rare earth market. Was there a war? No. Like, they didn't really care. Not really. I mean, you know, the few producers cared and a bunch of there were a bunch of stock price manipulators that like ran up and down rare earth mining stocks associated with that. But there are supply disruptions associated with geopolitics all the time. And the I don't think it would be that surprising. That being said, I'm not buying oil stocks hoping that Putin goes and does something, but it's not unreasonable that he or someone else like him might do something. We can expect something like that or as, as much as we could expect anything else, correct? Again, I'm not counting on it, but it could happen. So Josh, tell me, is now a good time to buy oil and gas stocks? Well, I think so. And it's actually been pretty exciting for me, especially as I go on fundraise, because while I think so, and you know, I'm relatively young and have only been a professional investor for less than 10 years, there are some really bright people out there and really famous people out there that are saying the same thing. So PIMCO actually put in their, their monthly update letter last week, they put out something saying that they think that now, it was amazing, they said, now is a good time to buy small cap oil and gas stocks. And Steve Schwartzman came out in an interview with Bloomberg today, and he said that now is the best time to invest in energy stocks in many years, which is pretty fantastic. I mean, I'm not sure I could pay for that kind of advertising. It's pretty great. And I'm not sure where else people would go to invest in small cap oil and gas stocks, frankly. I mean, there's not really a lot of choices in terms of advisors. And then I think there's a lot of risks in the space where there are a lot of these companies that we talked about that are over levered. And I think that if you're able to avoid those and able to find companies that are well-positioned and are cheap, 
that it actually makes a lot of sense. And I think that Chief Schwartzman and I think that, you know, Blackstone and I think that PIMCO are right. And I think that people investing now will, will do very well. And you go along on these small cap stocks, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The cheap ones that are they're undervalued and underlevered are, are very interesting right now. Any trading opportunities? <laughs> Buy low, sell high. But what if that happens every other day? <laughs> so, that's a challenge. There was actually a position I initiated and I was telling one of my clients about it and suggesting that he buy some too and he wanted to do some more due diligence and I was planning on holding it for probably a year or two. It was a high yielding company that happened to be under levered and, and particularly safe and was a very unusual opportunity. And so we talked about it around 10 a.m. LA time and I had put a modest size position on for my fund and by 1 p.m. LA time, the stock had gone up 40% and I sold it because it achieved the full return that I was expecting over a year, except it achieved that return over like two hours. So yes, <laughs> buy low, sell high, sometimes the same day, but you know, definitely with a long-term orientation, but sometimes if the market just gives you a gift, you take it, say thank you, and then you move on. I thank you for your time, Josh. Thanks for joining us today in the program. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Joshua Young of Young Capital Management. You can contact Josh through his website, youngcm.com. Look for more potential investment opportunities and analyst interviews in the coming weeks on the Ellis Martin Report. And remember, if you can't afford to risk, then don't. Invest wisely. I'm Ellis Martin. The Ellis Martin Report will be back soon. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and a few choice individuals engage us financially. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of our powerful programming on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.